And about 10.30, I decided that I would call the home, and I said, would you please get Mr. Barlow out of bed and have him come and speak with me? So he gets on the phone, and I said, if you're mad at me, let's get in the phone booth, and why don't you beat the crap out of me, and then let's do deals. And he started laughing, (laughs) and three days later, we met, and he handed me a map of the state of Georgia, and he said, you can either do the yellow ones, or the green ones, or the blue ones, and that's the way we're going to build out the state of Georgia for Walmart. Welcome to the Broker Lord Podcast. I'm Derek Walchek, and this is a podcast for commercial real estate brokers, especially those that want to add rental income to your portfolio. 50 states, 50 episodes of the Broker Lord Podcast. I'm talking to leading brokers around the country to hear their stories and to learn their mistakes and gathering the tips that can help each of us grow our business. Not in real estate or just starting out, I'm glad that you're here because so much of what we discuss will benefit you in any line of business. Got your free Broker Lord t-shirt yet? Oh man, they are super soft, super comfortable, and super free. Yes, free. Stick around and I'll tell you how to get yours. Today I'm talking to Les Callahan. Les was one of those careers that just makes you say, wow. Walmart, Publix, Hobby Lobby, Home Depot, Cracker Barrel, the list goes on. But I promise you, it's just the tip of the iceberg. But first, a word about our sponsor, which makes the Broker Lord podcast possible. The Broken Lord Podcast is brought to you by the commercial real estate professionals at Shannon Walchak. Currently, Shannon Walchak is seeking unanchored retail strip centers in growing metro markets in the South and Midwest. With $75 million in buying power, Shannon Walchak is ready to close on the right properties. The ideal centers are between 10 and 40,000 square feet, are located in affluent neighborhoods, have a high concentration of service and food tenants, and can be bought at a seven cap or better. Do you have a center that fits this profile? Then Derek Walchak wants to talk to you. Email dw at shanwalt.com. That's dw at s-h-a-n-w-a-l-t.com. Today we have a neighbor, relatively speaking, of mine, uh, at least being from Alabama, uh, we have Les Callahan, who's the president founder of First Colony Financial. So, Les, tell us about your company. Okay, my company was founded in uh, 1982. Um, so, we'll come up on a an anniversary in a couple of years that'll be quite fun. Um, primarily founded to develop for Walmart stores and subsequently developed for Home Depot and most recently Hobby Lobby. Tell me about as how you started out as a broker. What kind of clients did you serve? So uh, originally, I worked with a single-family developer, and then uh, secondly, worked with a days-in franchisee in limited service hotels. But about three or four years into my career, I made the transition into uh, representing uh, several European pension funds in the early institutionalization of U.S. real estate. Oh, wow. So were you doing, I guess, going back to the hotels, were you doing site selection for them? I was. And was it called that then, or did it have a name? Uh, it was still the site selection business. Okay. So at 22 and 23 years old, I had a yellow uh, twin-engine Cessna with radar and ice boots and would fly up to the Midwest and build hotels. That is awesome. What type of properties would you buy for the pension funds? And how did you, how did you get them as a client? So I woke up in the middle of 1975, uh, which dates me somewhat, and we were in the middle of a horrible recession. 
and I had several large projects under letter of intent as a broker. None of them closed, and I decided I needed to control one side of the equation or the other. Mm -hmm. I either needed to represent the capital or I needed to represent the client. And so I met a fellow who had graduated from Harvard Business School, and two of his classmates were Matt DeVito, who became president of the Rouse Company, which is today GPP. And the second of those was Jerry O'Connor, who created Corporate Property Investors and is a former chairman of ICSC. Those were his two Harvard Business School classmates. And so we represented the Royal Dutch Shell Pension Fund and Progress, which is the largest pension fund in the Unilever Group. And we spent the next six years trading assets among uh, the European pension funds and uh, those major mall developers and office building owners. Interesting. I assume there were malls in Europe that were similar or were, were what was being developed in the United States different than what was cropping up in Europe relative well, to malls? Uh, in Europe, you tend to have much smaller stores. Uh, so if you went to the average Marks department store, for example, in the 70s, it might be an order of magnitude 3,000 meters, 27,000 27, square feet. So it was much smaller with much larger stores. Um, so the Europeans were interested in deploying large amounts of capital. And during that six-year period, we actually deployed about 400 million equity, which wow. in the 70s and That's early 80s money. was a huge amount of money. It was absolutely incredible. What would that be? Maybe three, four billion now? or uh, You know, certainly a couple of billion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Man, high cotton. Do you know currently what cap rates are for uh, properties in Europe? I've always heard that they're, that the cap rates there are much lower than the United States. Well, they are because they don't have investment alternatives. Uh, so there's some cross-border tax issues and other issues, which uh, there are allocations that go uh, to other countries and other places. Mm -hmm. But the idea is if you're in Amsterdam and you're trying to invest in the Netherlands, how many choices do you have? Okay. Um, you just don't have that many choices. So to put out large amounts of money, if you're a multinational company, it's very difficult. So the lead investor that we had actually was founded in 1646 <laughs> and was based in Rotterdam. That's really cool. I didn't, I didn't expect this conversation to go to Europe. That's, that's great. Tell me about the first deal that you had actual ownership in and you weren't just doing it for a, a brokerage fee. Well, in uh, November of 1978, I was involved in a three-mall transaction that was about $170 million that, for example, included Perimeter Mall in Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> However, it took me 16 months between my prior mall closing and that closing. And at the end of the day, after I paid my taxes and paid the money that I had borrowed, I had a few thousand dollars left. And I said, I wonder what I can do to even out my cash flow. So about three months later, someone came to me and asked me if I would build a pizza store that was a 2,200-square-foot pizza store. And including the land, the entire cost of construction was $120,000. Wow. So we borrowed $98,000 at 14% interest. <laughs> and uh, I had 3000 in cash from my major mall closing, which was what was left after nearly a $50,000 commission. And... Um, I took 4000 in cash advances on my credit cards and borrowed $4,000 from the girl that I was dating, and I had $11,000, and so we opened the pizza store, and I ended up with $328 a month. And I said, wait, wait, that's a 40% cash on cash. It really doesn't matter how much I paid for the debt. This is about leverage. Right. Uh, 
By the way, I borrowed the money from uh, uh, a young lady who swears that I've never paid her back, who happens to be my wife of 38 years. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I hope she appreciates that she gave you her start. Gave you your start. Yes, absolutely. It reminds me every time. So obviously you, you caught the vision for ownership uh, in seeing how your money can grow. And obviously it's it's, you know, transactions are great, but you have to continue to repeat them. You have to continue to run on that treadmill. Whereas if you can own some stuff, obviously you've got that mailbox money and cash flow coming in. Um, so then what was your next deal after that? Well, I continued to build for that chain. Which do, you is, remember, do you remember what was the name of the chain? Well, uh, Ken Selby has a chain based in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Mazio's, also oh, yeah. Ken's. Yeah. Um, and it has over 600 stores. There are about 150 corporate stores and about 450 franchise stores. So we did 15 of those while I was still uh, with the firm that was representing the European pension funds. And I was sitting in the office one day. And a couple of people came in uh, literally through a back door, which had been propped open from somebody who stepped out for a minute. These two fellows wanted to meet with me. I was in a glass conference room, and I had eight or ten people. And I said, I'm sorry, this is a bad time for me to do this. <laughs> so um, they left. And about two hours later, about six o'clock at night, I went uh, out. And uh, you remember the old flip days when, when you had actually had receptionists that took uh, phone messages. And mm -hmm. there were two cards that were in my phone message box. Um, and the first one of those said, Curtis Barlow, Vice President, Real Estate, Walmart Stores. And mm -hmm. I said, I should have taken that meeting. <laughs> and so uh, I began calling all of the hotels that would be nearby and called them once and sat at my desk until about 8 o'clock and called all the hotels again and then said, well, I guess I'll just sit here for a while. And about 10 o'clock, I called all the hotels again. And about 10.30, I decided that I would call the home of the other person. And I called the home, and I'd met his wife once. And I said, would you please put uh, Mr. Barlow on the phone? And she said, well, they've already gone to bed. They have to get up early. I'm sorry you didn't have a chance to meet with them. And I said, well, I am too, but would you please get Mr. Barlow out of bed and have him come and speak with me? So literally, he's asleep. Or he's asleep. He's okay. asleep. So he gets on the phone, and I said, Mr. Barlow, I'm so sorry I couldn't meet with you. Would you be willing to meet with me? And he said, of course. He said, come to the Walmart booth, 1 o'clock, Monday of recon. And I said, okay, that's great, except for one thing. This is the middle of February, and that's in May. Right. I deserve that, but if you're mad at me, let's get in a phone booth, and why don't you beat the crap out of me, and then let's do deals. And he started laughing. <laughs> And three days later, we met, and he handed me a map of the state of Georgia, and he said, you can either do the yellow ones or the green ones or the blue ones because Weldon Wyatt is going to do the other ones, and that's the way we're going to build out the state of Georgia for Walmart. Here's our next takeaway, and probably is not a surprise for most. Commercial real estate is not for the faint of heart. I don't think I've ever asked a business prospect to take my call in the middle of the night, but that's an important lesson. We have to be bold and confident as we look to establish relationships. There's no room for laissez-faire. This is a competitive business, and those with skill, determination, and a bit of moxie will rise to the top. Do you struggle with that? Well, here's a trick. You have to first believe in yourself and that you will and can help your client, that you are truly providing something that they need. And if you can believe that, then you can sell it. What were you like in the 80s? I mean, were you, because to me, getting someone out of bed, I don't think I would do that. 
And then to be, you know, kind of have that edge of saying, you know, if, you, if you're mad at me, I understand. You can beat me up. Well, I specialize in walking through walls, jumping over tall buildings, and spitting nails. Okay. All right. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But I'd been in the business 10 years, and I'd, by that time, I'd built a, a number of the Ken's Pizzas, so I actually was quite competent and knew that I could deliver the small store program, which at the point that I started developing for Walmart, the stores were only 44,000 square feet, which is the size of a Publix today sure. or something else. Um, but I knew I could deliver that, and I knew I could be successful doing it that's that's amazing i mean that is a fantastic story persistence and uh just saying the right things to pique his interest because clearly you did what else what else did you start started developing for walmart and um um, that was a, a great run until they realized that their cost of capital was lower than any other developer they could ever have. And at that point, I tend to do a fee develop the Walmart site and do the shadow anchored. So we did several dozen shadow anchored centers and uh, freestanding uh, net lease builder suits. Mm-hmm. At one point, I probably did as many as 30 blockbuster deals in various places. Um, fortunately, I sold all but two of those before they went, to, went through bankruptcy. Um, so then in the 2000s, I did a lot of work with Home Depot. Okay. And in the last cycle, mostly with Hobby Lobby. Going back on your history of deals, and you've done enough of them, um, which one are you most proud of? Like where you really didn't feel like it was going to happen or whatever and just had to really use all your brain power? Um, one was actually, uh, the third Walmart that I did. I was in a town that I would not have driven through intentionally, but I was assigned a Walmart deal there. Okay. Uh, Rob Walton and the real estate team flew into a town, um, uh, which was about 30 miles away and we got in a conversion van and we went up and he said, build on that site. And I said, well, that's great. Well, the first thing I find out is he wants me to buy two operating gas stations. Uh, so we had environmental problems that went with that. And we ended up building a 44752. The day that the center opened in the fall of 1983, I had a total of $38,000 in the entire project. And I had built a 65,000 square foot shopping center with a full size Walmart for that day and time. If so, it was built for about a million eight. Okay, um, and you had thirty-eight. So you, I had thirty-eight thousand two percent equity. Holy cow! In the, in the in the project, just the leverage. The story gets better. Okay. Um, so when we go to the end of nineteen eighty-six, there was a major change in the tax law, and as a result of that, there was a two hundred basis point drop in interest rates and in cap rates. And so, if you think about taking that income stream and adjusting it by two hundred basis points, it went from a a project that was designed to make perhaps a hundred or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Don't get me wrong; that was a lot of money in nineteen eighty six to making five times that, and that was really the, the the start of my career. I had the liquidity to do virtually anything that I wanted to do. When we hear about nineteen eighty six, really, all you hear about are all the bad things that happened to people. This was actually, and quite frankly, I've never heard a good story out of eighty six other than what people were able to buy at the time. So you're saying that retail was actually helped. It was helped by the change in the cap rates, absolutely. Why did the cap rates change based on 86? Well, the demand for um, the, for debt completely went away because depreciation schedules for apartments changed with the 1986 Tax Act, which went into effect December 31st. Right. So at that point, there was not going to be any demand for uh, the debt, and interest rates dropped radically. 
Okay, I got you. So interest rates went down in 86 after they changed depreciation schedules. I got you. Okay, that makes sense. Right. So everybody in the apartment business went out of business. Right. uh, But everyone in retail or other long-term fixed uh, uh, credit-worthy leases did quite well at that point. At this point in the conversation, Les and I got into a pretty lengthy discussion on global finance as we peered through a giant crystal ball. Instead of playing that, I just want to recommend that each of us become lifelong economists. None of us will ever master the economy or what's happening or how it all fits together, but I think we all have to be students of it. So find your own sources, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, um, Bloomberg, whatever. The point is we have to understand the factors that will shape our business. All right, so we talked about the deal that you're most proud of. Tell me about a deal that went wrong and that you wish you hadn't done. Um, so I built all of the NTBs in Atlanta. I built the Blockbusters. I built the Ken's Pizzas. I ended up as a franchisee of Chili's working directly with Brinker in Texas and Oklahoma and Nebraska. Cumulatively, that's well over 100 things that I built, mm-hmm. several of them in the restaurant business. So I found the perfect out parcel that I was going to build in a town about 30 miles east of Atlanta and went and had a commitment from Home Depot and thought that we were going to do a Publix and have 15 out parcels and we would just simply <laughs> feast yeah. off of these out parcels. And so uh, uh, in the middle of that process, while Home Depot was under construction, Target came along and decided that they would come on the opposite corner. Mm. And we said, great, uh, Publix and a super Target will do just fine. Uh, Publix will literally eat their lunch. Of course, what happened is Target said, oh, if Publix is interested in the market, we'll just do a Target department store. And Publix went across the street. And so that was a project that I wish I had back. I would have a big, you know, second or third row house at the beach (laughs) based upon what I lost on that one transaction. And it took eight and a half years to play out before we could exit it. What what kept that from pulling you under? I mean, that could be substantial. Well, I had a had a majority partner with a about a five hundred million dollar gap statement and okay. about fifty million in cash. So it was a bad land deal and ultimately they were kind enough to come to me and say, to clean up our asset base in the United States, we're gonna take you out. Here's our number. And I can remember saying to their representative, this is at a huge discount to what I paid. And his comment was, do you think anybody else in the world would touch it? And I said, no. <laughs> or care what your basis said, is. He said, you should just be happy that you're going get to your, get your time available to go work on something else because I'll now have 100% of this project and have to continue to work on it. At least you get to walk away from it with a loss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, land, yeah, land can be a beast. You can you can make a lot of money or you can get really burned when music stops or, you know, something like that happens. You know, obviously the, the audience here are fellow brokers, probably a lot of newer brokers who are starting out. What would you say over the years that you've practiced distinguish the really excellent brokers from just the marginal ones? Well, you have to be prepared. You have to really think about where the client is in the decision-making process, 
where their representative is in that process? Are you talking to the right person? Do they really have to do deals? So the demographic piece, looking ahead to traffic improvements or uh, barriers to other entitlements, zoning, um, those types of things, that's the rote part. The biggest challenge is sort of understanding the client and their specific needs. So, for example, with Walmart, when Sam Walton came to the that very first store that I built in my own name, he looked at me when he got to the garden shop and he said, why isn't there a hose bib at the garden shop? How do you expect me to water the flowers? <laughs> now, I could have said, I used your architect. I used your civil engineer. I used your contractor. I used your team. How about having that conversation with them? And instead of doing that, I said, yes, sir, I'm so sorry. And literally, the plumber was knocking a hole in the, in the, in the brick during the grand opening ceremony in order to run the plumbing into the building. Mm-hmm. So it's that attention to detail, understanding what the client wants, and trying to be on top of that and anticipate those things. Mm-hmm. I, I make a point to go and try to see uh, as many of my clients once or twice a year as I can. Even if it's 15 minutes, I'll make a special effort. Uh, The other advice that I would give to brokers is you don't need to know everybody. That's not a good thing to do. As you and I go over to the ICSC Orlando conference here with 5,500 people, I I may casually know 100 of them. I'm looking for six to 10 people that I'm going to go see and have very intense, very specific conversations with. And so you don't have to know everybody. I won't know half the tenants that are there. I probably won't know 75% of the tenants Mm -hmm. that are there, but I'll know the 25% I need to know. Right. And you're going with a plan and you're going to execute it on it. You know, looking back on your life, what would you tell your 20 something self about business or what would you, what advice would you have for yourself? I had a boss that every time I walked by his door, he would hold out his hands with his palms down for me to slow down. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered why he did that. So finally, one day I went in and I said, Chip, why are you doing that? He said, well, take your time because one of these days, all of your friends are going to be doing the big deals. You just need to make sure you have friends. Mm -hmm. And so that's the that's the the big thing. It's it's if you're smart, there's a tendency. Well, I, I'm going to try to jump over this person who's in front of me, or I'm going to try to expedite this process as opposed to playing it out as it is naturally. And that's tough. And you you just need to let things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Now it's great that you can be like one of the famous uh, chess players, the world class chess players, who realize the whole game's only thirty or thirty two moves long, and you can think six or eight moves out. But if you try to execute them all at the same time, it'll just be a mess. Mm-hmm. So you have to take the time to see that play out over time and let the client, let your side, let everybody come together in a, in the right way. Because at the end. You're not as good as your last deal. You're only as good as your next deal. <laughs> Very well said. So you were sort of a wonder kid growing. I mean, you were you hit you hit the scene pretty quick, and you were. I mean, people are like, "Wow, how old is he? What's he doing?" You know that. Yeah, I got in the business when I was 21. Okay. I was a honors graduate, a cum laude graduate of an Ivy League college. What college? I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. Had before that had gone to a 200-year-old prep school. I had graduated at the with honors there as well in the top of my class in both cases. And so I assumed that all of the rest of the people in the world perhaps needed to be pushed along or if they couldn't be pushed along and I would jump over them. 
Well, what happened is I got later in my career, I would see them again, and they would resent the way that they'd been treated. Yeah, for sure. And so I spent a lot of my time, by the time I got into my 40s, even though I'd been in the business for 20 years, going back and thinking about some of the relationships that I had not done a good job with. It's so very important to be able to pick up the call and know that the person on the other end of the line is anxious to receive your call. Think about your own career. Are you building or burning bridges? Long-term success relies on long-term relationships. Much like Les, I spent the early days of my career focused on making deals and grabbing my piece of the pie. We need to remember that even in the biggest markets, there are a limited number of people in our business and a limited number of clients who will rely on our services. Treat everyone fairly. Leave every transaction with all parties feeling good about the deal. It's a good investment in building those long-term relationships and building an exemplary reputation. In the end, that's really our only lasting asset. I mean, you've worked with lots of retailers. You've seen their store sizes grow. Is there a typical life cycle that most retailers go through now that you've done this long enough? Well, you have to reinvent yourself every five to seven years if you're a retailer. And I'm not sure that that period of time is, isn't uh, shortening. But now, obviously, Walmart moving every seven years, that, that, I, that trend has lengthened correct? I mean, yes. Well, Walmart swears that they've never relocated a super, a super center. center. Okay. Now, they've closed a few um, because of access issues or other issues that made it unprofitable for the store, but they've never relocated one. And when you realize that they now have 41% of all of the grocery business in, in the continental United States, and Kroger, for example, has 12%, and Publix has less than 10. Mm. Um, it goes to show you how what a dominant player they've become. And they weren't particularly good at it in the beginning, but right. today they are. Let's say now, for whatever reason, the state of Georgia passes a law and says that Les cannot practice in the real estate industry ever again. So you, you, you can't do anything within the industry. What, what would you do? What would, what would fire you up? Well, I was trained. My education would be for investment banking, uh, operating companies uh, primarily. And I certainly understand um, leverage buyouts and, and private equity investments. And as a matter of fact, have some of those if I've, as I've tried to diversify, to diversify away from purely owning commercial real estate. But the other thing that I've enjoyed is I've been a director of publicly traded banks for 27 years. And so I guess if I needed a job for a salary, I would go and work in commercial banking as a CRE lender or, or um, in corporate banking. I've often, I've often thought about that, that, that I think former real estate people would make the very best CRE lenders because you, you know BS when you see it. Well, and the reason why I originally took my first legal director job, which has some liability that goes with that, was to understand the envelope. Hmm. Where, what question should I ask? What should I ask for that I wasn't asked for? That you weren't aware of. That I wasn't. And so I was focused on interest rates or fees or uh, certain types of due diligence requests that might have been out of the ordinary, as opposed to really looking at the trends, where there are times where lenders want to go long. They want long-term fixed interest rates. And so that's different than just looking at the spread. I mean, today, everybody wants to go short, Mm -hmm. but there are times they want to go long. There are times they want bigger fees. There are times they want smaller fees. And and make it up in the spreads. Uh, so that the, understanding what's going on in the industry and what the regulators are pushing them to do is a big part. Well, this has been great. Um, Les, thank you so much. This has been, I mean, really fantastic. I, a lot of directions I didn't anticipate. So thank you for sharing your time um, with us. 
Getting your free Broker Lord t-shirt is easy. Subscribe to the podcast and review it online. Then email us at Derek at BrokerLord.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at BrokerLord.com. Let us know your size and address and the t-shirt is yours. Supplies are limited, so get your t-shirt today. And that's a wrap on another episode of the Broker Lord Podcast. As I work my way across the United States, keep emailing me your questions. I love to hear from you. Send an email to Derek at BrokerLord.com. That's Derek with five letters, D-E-R-E-K at BrokerLord.com. Thanks to all of you who subscribe and those who are sharing the podcast with others. It really helps. Once again, thanks to Les Callahan for an incredible conversation and to Shannon Walchek, who sponsors the Broker Lord Podcast. Until next time, this is Derek Walchek, and this is the Broker Lord Podcast.